I'm just one of these people that don't pre-plan the sculpture. I don't make models, you see, like you're supposed to. I, t I get the stone and I'm not sure until I have the stone. The stone decided on its limitations in volume how things were going to start and where they would go so that I could take away the least amount of stone and create the most amount of expression. Hi, this is Materially Speaking, where artists tell their stories through the materials they choose. In this series, we're in an artist community in Italy near a town called Pietrasanta, nicknamed Little Athens because of its tradition for carving marble. We're 15 miles south of the marble mountains of Carrara, sandwiched between the sea and pine forests on one side, and olive groves rising up in the hillsides into the Appuan Alps on the other. Today I'm talking to Canadian sculptor Douglas Robinson, who's lived in the area since 1979. We met at my home on the hillside above Pietrasanta, towards the end of the day, when the sun was setting over the sea, creating a gorgeous pink and orange sky. As we walk round my garden, Douglas's gaze dropped down to the path, and suddenly he was rattling off the names of the stones he saw. Bardiglio from La Capella, Rosa di Verona, and another red marble called Colomandina. He noticed a tiny lozenge of Rosso Francesi with white quartz in it, and one cream-coloured marble called Trani, and then another called Boccioni. He hardly paused for breath. He pointed out some red and beige travertine pieces with Carrara white, and finally the local green and white Cipollini from the Appuan Alps. Douglas Robinson. Uh, you know, that's uh, the usual name I go by. Yes. I don't. I don't sign my. I sign my name with with my initials, but it's. But the D is a is a wine glass sideways, and it runs through the R, so it's D R with a wine glass. When you reserve stone in a stone yard, I have my own uh, reservation number. That's two glasses, because that's what I was called when I, I w when I was younger here in the bar of Jaya. I'd be carrying two wine glasses, like my backup, or I'd end up with two. And so now my sign for when I reserve a stone is two wine glasses beside each other, right? <laughs> yes, well, I'm a, an expatriate here in Versilia, Canadian sculptor. Uh, like many, I came when I was young uh, to learn more from the Artigiani, and I had a travel grant from Canada, from Montreal, that was to last seven months, and I stretched it to two years. <laughs> I didn't go back home. <laughs> I just stayed and worked for those first two years and got work with uh, Sorensen. So right away, I, I became somebody that quickly adapted to this type of environment that was to do with art and culture and using stone as the main expression. And what's, what's the attraction for people who, who don't know why people come to Pietrasanta? What is the attraction of working as an artist in Pietrasanta? Well, one of the major facilitators is that because of the marble industry and because there's such a long history of support network for dealing in stone, from cranes 
to shippers, to box makers, to tool makers. Uh, these tool makers were already known around the world for, for their tools that were being sold in New York and Chicago and, and Paris, but they were making them here and they were supplying also the local artists. So if a young artist comes here, all of a sudden they're exposed to not only several hundred types of Italian stone, but also stone shipped here from around the world in blocks to be sliced. So the quantity of choice in this area is exponentially larger than any other place because the history goes back 2,000 years of cutting blocks out of the quarries and bringing them down by ox cart. So young artists really liked it here because before the euro, you might say that, you know, if you had foreign currency, you could live pretty well. And then you got to meet uh, people from around the world. You know, like many places where artists start something, then the commercial end takes over and you have to go elsewhere. And it's, that's almost occurred. Yeah. And what medium did you work in before? I mean, when you were at art school, were you a painter or did you... Well, you already the, 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 our College of Art had this category called general studies. You didn't have to specialize in fine art or graphic art or textile art. You could try everything, and that's what I basically stayed with. And at near the, near the senior year there, I met a man, Leonard Osterley, and he was Hungarian. He was teaching one course in stone carving. And I decided to take that course. <laughs> After my second sculpture, uh, they went right into an art gallery. I worked by hand then, but... Um, there was a, just a natural feeling for it that happened like just immediately. Without, I didn't even think about it so much. I was just p making things. And uh, Austerly made sure I got the Senior Sculptor Award for the college. And, and, uh, and most of what I made in his studio went, went to, was, was sold while I was a student. So that was pretty encouraging. <laughs> My art academy, the Ontario College of Art, had a uh, painting studio on the Piazza San Croce in Firenze. So there were artists going every, every summer to Firenze. And then we got marginally connected to Pietro Santa. So a small group of us came here instead of Firenze. So amongst the stone, do you have a... What was the stone you first started? Did you start with marble? What was the first attraction or...? <clears throat> Do you choose different bits of stone or different types of stone, I should say, for different projects? I think, I think what's exciting is that you have the chance, because of the variety, you have such an enormous chance to try out different materials. So, of course, the main body of the rock here is, in fact, marble from either here or Portugal or Greece or elsewhere. But many other stones come here that are in the limestone neighborhood, or a lot of granite comes here from elsewhere, including Canada. And uh, many, many hard stones from South America and the Nordic countries come here. So if you're somebody who likes granite and work, or likes to work really hard at things, stone that lasts outside well, this is also a wonderful place to choose from in, the, in those materials. But I would say most people here, uh, a younger artist would be coming to try out marble. And of course, the Carrara white marble is world famous, you know, maybe after the early white Greek. But the Carrara white, at its best, it holds huge detail. For, so if you're, in, if you're a figurative artist, for example, then, you know, going all the way back to Michelangelo, you know, you look at his work, or Bernini's later on, 
you know, you can carve fingernails in this material and it's going to stay like that. You can almost, you know, do the image of a cuticle in, and find statuario and it stays there. An amazing place to see the, the virtuosity of more contemporary artisans is to go to the cemetery of Genova. The merchants of Genoa were competing from about, uh, you know, 1800 to 1940s with their family tombs. And at that time, there were hundreds and hundreds of artisans from here all the way up to Genoa and back who were hired to do one project for several years. And, be, and somebody would design something and somebody would make models. And then these artisans would go and, and make uh, extraordinary family tombs. The tombs get thematic and full of drama and uh, spectacular. There are children in that cemetery. There's one little child, and it has, still has eyelashes made of stone, you know. And, and uh, it's an amazing thing to see. Even still, La Pietà is an amazing tour de force of, of Michelangelo because there's, you know, Christ has, has his veins just the way we have that are slightly raised through the skin and all that detail. He, he did it in that stone from here. You see, so it's a lovely material that is easy to relate to this fresh, uh, creamy white. And so I think a lot of young people get enamored with it, you know, and, and really enjoy that material. I used to stay clear of it a lot, but because it was kind of too pure, though I, I've over the years used it up quite a bit. But now I'm coming back to it. And right now I'm working more and more with it. So why did you veer away? Well, because I, li I like to try uh, travertines and colored reds and, and browns. And there's a beautiful travertine from, from Iran that, that is a, a warm Indian yellow. But it's a but it's a mottled yellow. It's not just one color, you know. But it, and so those material those materials are beautiful stone. You know, they're, they have holes in them. They're travertine, but they're very strong material, just the same. So do you do you generally find a bit of stone and then think what you're going to do with it, or do you decide what you want to do and then look <laughs> for the material to do it with? It's usually the former. I t I get the stone and I'm not sure till I have the stone. That's right. So I, I don't, I'm just one of these people that don't pre-plan the sculpture. I might, I might make the odd sketch in my head, but that's just a, that's just a relationship to ideas in my head. And, and, the, and it will help organize some direction. But I don't make models, you see, like you're supposed to. But since I don't get so many commissions, I'm more free to produce whatever I want uh, that just go to gallery or go for, to a private show, you see. I have another thing that I that I'm making now, and it's and and and, and it's called Name and her friends, which and Name is the wife of Noah, and she's on her haunches, pressed up on the side of this animal. That the head is a, a mountain goat, a mountain sheep, and the back of it, that animal is facing the other way is a porcupine. Those are the two main animals, if you can believe it, and she's pressed up against them with her arms open like this, and on her left is a little dog, or it could be a little sheep under her arm. And on her right hand is a kingfisher facing her hand. And around the other side, there's, a, there's an owl flying straight out of the flank of the porcupine, a little owl, flying at you. And across from the owl, is a, in relief on the flank of the mountain goat on the other side, is a deer with antlers turning and looking at the owl. But 
This woman, Name, she has two braids, and they go over the top of the animal. One this way, one that way. And one braid turns into the tail of a whale. And the deer is looking at that, and there's a tiny bird flying into the antler of the deer. So this is a big narrative, right? But I didn't know anything of that was going to happen. I didn't plan it. I had the stone. The whole stone spoke. It was a chunk. It wasn't a block. If this had been a, a, a six-sided flat surface block, there's no way any of this would have happened. This was a rough chunk that went to a point, and when I saw it, and even Georg says, I see a head, I see a head of an animal in that. And I said, yeah. He says, I, I know what you're going to do. I said, yeah, yeah, I, I'm going to do an animal, but I didn't know what. And then when, when, when these animal things start, I, instead of doing a one thing, I usually, they're, they're going to be metamorphosed, they're going to be uh, trans, tra go in transition. Metamorphosed. Yeah. because you can't go back with some other forms of art. You can make a misstep. You can shrink it and go ahead still that way. But, but you have to be careful near the end of something that you're doing, that's right. Because if you've got a, a certain, there's limitations right away. That, and I am, I'm, at that, I'm at that place with her, because she has to be really correct. The, the other animals could be a little rougher, it doesn't matter. But she's the theme, so the expression has to be that has to be alive. And that part is really tricky. The surface of her body has to be very, very clean. The other details near her, that will depend on the, the edge surface of how she looks, you see. So when I know the final finish of the neck of the mountain sheep, then I know where, where her braid and the neck of that animal meets, I know where that level is. But you don't know that until the animals are done, right? Or you have to keep going around the sculpture and working all, all the layers together. Because if you didn't, you wouldn't be able to come to where I'm going. And that's why models, if I was to make a model of this, the whole idea would never be what the sculpture is now. This isn't a big stone. You know, my little bird flying into the, uh, it's flying into the antler is no bigger than your fingernail. Just going back to what you said when we were chatting earlier about, it's one thing why one comes here, but why do you stay? Well, I did, I did leave in the 90s. Like when the, when the Euro started, let's say in 2000, everything went up about 20, 20 23, 25%. And that, that was really hard on people. I left <laughs> and went to Vancouver Island, which was okay, because I, I learned a lot. I worked in wood a lot out there, beautiful yellow cedar. Canada, I can't really let go of when it comes to being in, 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 the, in the rural nature part of it, the forested country part of it. It's part of who I am. And so when I go in it today, it's wonderful. And luckily, we have this summer cottage on this spectacular lake. There's no one on the lake. And it's 10 miles long and three miles wide. And I go out in a canoe, and you think it's your own lake. There's nobody there except you. And nature, and the, and the fall trees colors, you'd love it. But then I moved back to Ontario, and I had my own house and studio for about five or six years. And I realized that uh, I was too isolated. 
I was working in my own studio. And, it, and it's best if you're working in stone to have at least two allies, at two or three people, because there are maneuvers you're going to do that you shouldn't be doing them by yourself because we're dealing with a lot of weight. And in fact, it happened to me at my own studio uh, in Canada. I was going to take a stone off the floor and put it on a cavaletto, a work, a work table, and I decided I could lift it uh, by myself in one go. But it would be like those re the, the, the weightlifters, the, the clean jerk, you know, where you have to heave it up and get it up. You can't hesitate. And I picked the stone up in one go, and I, I thought I could get it onto the table, but I only got it on the edge of the table, and it came back on me and pushed me right to the ground and sat on my chest. I had to push it off me. I didn't break anything, but I was in shock because I was so excited to go to work. That's why I didn't, I didn't be bothered to go ask my neighbor who was a glassblower just, just a, a few minutes away. I, I was going to do it by myself. Well, because of that, I lost a month's work. I had to leave and go away. I couldn't come back for, I, I was like, it, it, my whole body went in, was in shock for a couple of weeks. And uh, I couldn't believe how stupid I was. And, and uh, that's what happens when you work by yourself in stone and then you start thinking you're going to cut corners. So those are the reasons, you know, working alone too much. I was missing the ambiance here. I was missing the association of other professional carvers. And uh, I really wanted to come back. Having recently moved into a new studio, I wanted to know how Douglas felt about it. How does it feel? Oh, wonderful. Wonderful. You will wait till you see this place. It's just so wonderful. What's special about it? Well, we're back on a river. So on behind the studio, there's no one and nothing, a big open space. And the front is a, an olive orchard that comes right up to the studio on three sides. The building has uh, glass on three sides, very large windows on three sides. And all the windows are frosted. So you stand in there on a bright day. It's luminous, but soft. The light in Tuscany, you see, the, that's what painters talk about a lot. And I, I used to wonder, you know, because in different parts of the world, there is different light. And I, and I didn't understand that at first because I was thinking, well, what, why the atmosphere of the English air or sky, it can't be so different from the Netherlands, can it? Or, can it, or France or Italy or, well, the light bounces off these hills and these mountains and this sea and it creates its own light. And it creates its own light because of the particles that come off the plants. Even the olive trees would create their own reflective light. So it's different here than elsewhere. So we're in Douglas's studio. So the sun comes over the hills where you are at Montage today. Pretty much just left there, left. And then it sets just over here. So all day long, we have this light on this side of that studio. I love it, it's great. Because you can work really early or work really late and run away at noon if you wish. And how did you find it? 
I found it because I was riding my bicycle across the river to my old studio, which was just up there. And I saw this building tucked in the olive trees. And I knew right away that nobody was using it. I could just tell by the feeling. Because this used to be a much busier uh, marble uh, company years ago. They might have had five or six or seven workers, but now they're down to three. And what does it mean to you having the perfect studio? Well, for me, it means because I live in the neighborhood, is to have these olive trees. I can't live without them anymore. And so they're my friends. And now that I can live amongst them, I, I feel that I can work better. You know, I can go into the shade with them or be out here in the sun by the river. <laughs> can I have a look inside? Yes. <laughs> Georg, Georg likes to use these ancient medieval tripods for moving heavy stone because then we don't need a forklift. We can, we can move some very heavy things with those things. And uh, we're the only ones now that have that kind of uh, medieval hardware. <laughs> we do have something more modern, but it's not nearly as fun. Now this looks like your work. Beautiful. Is this you? Yes. Very nice. So it's really light here. I can see why you love it. And how warm is it in the winter? Well, it, it actually is surprising because of the sun coming in, but we, we, we do have a handmade stove that we might set up in the, in, over there in the winter. Georg's old handmade stove, we still have it. It's just sitting there. It, you know, it's a real barrel, so it's handmade. You, oh, can, yeah. you can throw a big log in that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you start out here and then move over there when the sun changes? Or? If I'm roughing out with a diamond saw, we, we tend to rough out and make a lot of dust on the other side. Mm -hmm. And I started this sculpture here on the other side early this week, and I moved it here yesterday because now I'm just fine-tuning it. I'd rather, I'd rather be right here. I'd like to look at the mountains and the trees. <laughs> wow, you've got a great view. So you're almost in the middle of an olive grove. We're, we are in an olive grove, and I have oil from these trees because the family gave us some oil, and it was spectacular. And it's nice having the rest of the marble workers next door. They're right there. If we need a large crane, they're happy to help us. So they're, they're, they're really happy. These, these marmisti are happy to have artists next door to them because they're working marble, and, and we're working marble in a different way. So tell me again, what was the purpose of this building in the olden days? They had these large polishing machines with buffers. You would buff up uh, all the marble and uh, granite and make it shine. And so it was creating fine powder. And so here, all the floor would be covered, and you just hose the whole floor, and there would be three exits, goes into a canal, and goes into a recycling pond. So that's special for a studio. I was talking with someone yesterday, and we came up on the subject of Bari Jaya. Yes. And we'd spoken a little bit about it. Could you tell me who was there in your day and what it meant to you? Yes, the Bargea. Well, it was the artist center where you, you would go after work and meet practically everybody that was connected to Pieta Santa. And Sam uh, of uh, Studio Sam, was, he was always there like a host later on in the day. And any artist that he'd never met before, he would always offer them a glass of grappa. It was a de rigueur to have a grappa at Bargea with Sam. And, what, and he, was, he was giving away to friends and artists so much grappa that the company that stocked the grappa in that bar was called Grappa Julia. They sent an agent to check out how come Pietrasanta was selling more Grappa Julia than any place in Italy. They didn't, they didn't understand it either. Where is Pietrasanta and what is this Barigea? 
And the agent shows up and sees this tiny little bar. They couldn't understand anything. How could they be selling more of their own grappa than anybody in the country? It's because Sem was giving it all away. It's just a little bar. It's called the Gatonero today, you know. But it was always packed with everybody. It was very fun. <laughs> Can you remember the names of some of the bigger artists that you met that, there back in those days? Well, the very first person that I ever, ever knew that came by there was Noguchi, Esther Lepoint. So, you know, when it comes to people of, of, of renown, Noguchi passed by, and, and uh, you know, French artists like Ipustiki would come by, Sorensen would come by then, even when he was here then, and, and uh, uh, there were many different types of artists from all over the world. That looks like Sam up there. That is Sam up there. He was an artisan. He was a professional artisan. He, he, they say he made one of the best uh, uh, pietas ever, but he was really top-notch. Uh, uh, sculptor of figurative ecclesiastic work, any kind of work. And at some point in his life, he reached that apex, I think, as skill, and then he wanted to just run and, 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 and promote a studio that dealt with world art and contemporary art. And so he did that. And he was, a, he was an extremely wonderfully gregarious person and uh, truly supportive of the artist. For me, the more complex is actually to make things simpler. To make a story seems easier for me in some ways. To make an actual, like a literary story. But to make a strong semi-abstract work out of no plans ahead, that's a real challenge. So thanks to Douglas Robinson. You can see his work on his website at douglasrobinson-sculpture.com. Editorial thanks to Guy Dowsett. For photographs of all the work discussed in this series, follow us on Instagram or visit our website materiallyspeaking.com and join our mailing list to hear about upcoming episodes. (laughs) 